It's always exciting hearing stories of the family of faith and how we come to faith in Jesus. And, and I enjoy also just kind of thinking back and re- reminiscing about just stories, my own family and kind of what's going on in my, my family with kids and everything. And there's always a lot there, you know, plenty of laughs and that kind of thing. I was thinking this week, actually, of several years ago, Emma was about seven, Bree was about five or six, Pierce was one, and Emma, Steph, and I, we were in one room just kind of talking, having a conversation, and Bree and Pierce were in another room, and they were giggling, and they were having fun, and, you know, we were kind of talking for a while, and we probably should have known, you know, your first clue is if a six-year-old and a one-year-old are having fun together for too long, something's going on. Well, eventually the conversation ends, and we go over, we walk over into the other room to see what's happening, and there's Pierce, and he's in nothing but a diaper, Brie is armed with two markers, and he had become her canvas. I mean, she's grinning from ear to ear with a smile that you could have buttoned behind her ears. And, you know, we asked, Brie, what's going on? She said, Mommy, Daddy, we're we're just having fun. I'll tell you, that girl knows how to have fun. She's always known how to have fun. We were uh, around the similar time, similar time we were, we were, checking out of a hotel room. Steph and Pierce, Steph was getting Pierce ready to go in the hotel room. I was taking the luggage down with the girls. And we get down to, to the lobby area, and there's somebody playing the piano. And I thought for a second, this is kind of strange. This doesn't seem quite like the kind of hotel that would have a piano player. And so we walk over to see what's going on, and there's this girl. She's probably eight, nine years old, and she's at the piano just playing just really beautiful music. And the girls were intrigued, and they really liked what was going on, so they, they wanted to sit there and just listen to her play. So I said, okay, that's fine. Y'all, y'all sit right here. I'll take the luggage out. I'll load up the car, and I'll come back to get you. So I do. I take the music out or take the luggage out. I come back, and when I re-enter the hotel, the music doesn't sound quite the same. I look over where I had left the girls, and Emma is still seated there. She's just still listening, enjoying whatever, but Bree's not with her. Bree had gotten up on that piano bench and slid right next to that girl, and she's just mashing away. And I wish you could have seen the contrast. I mean, this picture was incredible because here on one side is this girl. And she's so put together. She's wearing this really nice dress, nice shoes. She's got her hair brushed back and this beautiful ponytail. And she's sitting up straight and tall. And she's pressing the keys with such precision and eloquence. And next to her is Brie. Brie didn't have shoes on. Okay. She had kicked her flip-flops off and just left them next to Emma. She's wearing like ratty jeans and a ratty t-shirt. We were getting ready to go hiking. Okay, her hair was unbrushed. She had that good morning hairdo going on. And she's not sitting back touching the keys with precision, okay? She's doing her Stevie Wonder thing. And she's like all over the place, just mashing these keys. She doesn't know what's going on. And... I walk in, I kind of smile a little bit because that's just Brie, and then I walk over and whisk her away, and we get out of there, you know, as fast as we can. But that's just life, you know, that's, that's, that's life with Brie, it's fun. And if we think about it, we'd probably all admit that we've all had times in our lives where we've colored outside the lines, where we've made some music that's a little off-key, where there's been moments in our life where we're not completely put together the way we'd like to be. We probably all 
admit that. But Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that our issues, the issues of being human, go much, much deeper than that. Turn with me this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. To set it up for you, in Ephesians 1, Paul writes of this big vision of this huge God, the cosmic Christ. And we've, we looked at the need to shift from more effort to more Jesus. And then once you have more Jesus and you have this big view of God, then Paul looks back at the church and he says, now I want you to focus on who you are. And in focusing on who you are, he takes us right back to the beginning before we were the church. But a big view of God leads to a big view of the church. And so that's what these next three weeks are about. The need to shift from more volunteers to more masterpieces. Because we, as the church, are saved to the glory of God. We heard that over and over again in chapter 1. To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Son. To the glory of God the Spirit. And now we look this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And we see just where we came from. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not a pleasant description. You know, it's, we like to talk about how we're the church, how God has made his church to go and to bring the fullness of Christ into every corner of culture, into every sphere of society. We like that. But this goes back to before we were the church and just how bad off we were. And, you know, old uh, country preachers, this caricature that they sometimes portray on TV, you would get the idea that they would come to a passage like this and they would take off their coat and then you would know they were going to get serious that morning, right? When the coat goes away, it's trouble and the handkerchief comes out and his, and his cheeks get red and big and he's, man, he's going to town because he's talking about sin and how bad, ugly everything is and, and he just lays into it, right? This is almost the picture that we can sometimes have. And then he would, he would tell you that he would kind of just paint this fire of hell and he kind of holds you over hell almost like a marshmallow on a stick, you know, just letting you get all toasty so that some would respond out of fear. Some, some are going to respond. And then the church is listening and they're saying, oh yeah, I hope those sinners are listening. And then we go home and we say, oh man, the preacher really preached this morning. But to understand Ephesians 2 that way is to miss the point. Because if Paul had a handkerchief when he was preaching, it wasn't to wipe the sweat off his brow, it was to wipe the tears off his cheek. Because this passage wasn't meant for the lost, it wasn't meant for the unsaved, he's writing this to the church. In fact, whenever Paul presents the gospel, you go through any of Paul's presentations of the gospel, it's always, hey, the joy of the kingdom can be yours, it's the good news of Jesus. It's not a turn or burn, hellfire and brimstone theology. The only time you ever get messages like that is when Jesus is preaching to the religious people and when he's trying to wake them up, these religious people who think they've got it together. That's when he goes to the turn or burn stuff to say, no, 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 you need to wake up. You're not there yet. So Paul, he's writing this to the church 
to show us, hey, this is where you came from. This is how huge your God is that he would rescue us from this so that we would then in turn live lives of worship in awe to the God who redeemed us and adopted us. Paul wants us to know the extent of our problems outside of Christ. And it's not just that we colored outside the lines. It's not just that we made some music that was off key or that we weren't simply put together right. It goes much deeper than that. And the solution to this human condition is not just a better program or more education or enhanced self-esteem. No, the problem of humanity is more fundamental and more hopeless than that. Our problem is, apart from God, we were dead. Do you see that? Apart from God, we are dead. Now, we don't like to admit that. You know, we, we want to back away from that truth and just say, hey, you know, maybe, maybe we don't have it all together. Maybe we have some issues, some flaws, but dead. I mean, we seem to be getting along just fine. We've got, we've got friends. We're enjoying parts of life. We're, we eat. We exercise. We do stuff. We make some contributions. How could we be dead? But Paul says that's just what we are. And the two basic characteristics of death are powerlessness and corruption. I mean, you think about it. If something terrible were to happen to one of you this morning and you just kind of lay down and we think you're gone, what are we going to do? We're going to come up to you and we're going we're to poke you and see if you respond. We're going to talk to you. We're going we're to shake you. We're going to do CPR. We're going to do whatever we can. We're going to try to get you back. But if you just lay there and don't do anything because you are powerless to respond, you are unresponsive. That's what death is. It's, it's a lack of response. You are unresponsive, totally powerless. It's impossible to reach this person because they're gone. And he can't do anything. If you're dead, you can't do anything to change that condition. You're, you're totally reliant on someone else. You are powerless. The, the second characteristic of death is corruption. right? This is why mortuaries exist. Because dead bodies deteriorate quickly. You know, they, they, they decay, they fall apart, they lose their consistency. You remember the story of, of Lazarus? Uh, Martha says to Jesus, in effect, hey, Lazarus is gone, Jesus. It's too late. You know, you, you can't do anything for, for him now. Corruption has already set in. The body smells terrible. It's been four days. See, corruption is a mark of death. And Paul says that we are all dead, one through our trespasses. The, the, the word there, it literally means to miss your step. You know, if you, if, you intend, if you see a hole and you intend to step over the hole, but you miss your step and you step in the hole and turn your ankle, that's, that's what this is picturing. Okay, if you're going to walk down the stairs and you miss the next stair and you just tumble down, you know, if, if you're walking, if you take a long walk off a short pier, Okay, if you've done any of those things, then you understand what he's talking about here. It's to miss your step, to think that you are stepping somewhere solid, but you end up going head over heels, you end up going down, that this is the result. And we're all guilty of missteps. We may, we may not mean to do it, but we misstep nonetheless. We, we cannot fulfill our best ideals. We don't always step on solid footing. And the result of this is gravely bad. It is spiritual death. We are dead, defined by powerlessness and corruption. Some years ago, a great theologian 
Oz Guinness. He's the son of medical missionaries, and he'd come back to the United States, and, and he's written a lot just on the culture of our society and the church. And in the 90s, he wrote this timeless, penetrating assessment of many philosophies and ideals and isms in our society in a book called The Dust of Death. Great book, highly recommend it. And he pointed out that the masses of humanity, that we all seem to be living on this pendulum where we swing from one extreme to the other. That there are people who say, hey, it's never been better in society. And then there's others Oh, it's never been worse in society. That we swing from one to the other. Optimism, naive optimism, to cynical pessimism. From belief in socialist solutions to belief uh, that mankind's solutions can be solved by the free market. From spirituality to materialism, and on and on. And he defines all these, and he goes through all of them. Each thought, each philosophy, each ism. And he points out fatal flaws in every single one. And the reason why this happens is because we have this philosophy that somehow we can make the world okay. That we can put something into place and it will be good, but we miss this crucial aspect of human nature. A reality that this solution or that solution, whatever solution, will not ultimately work given the reality of human nature. And Oz Guinness, he argues that no matter how well-intentioned these approaches might be, they're all missteps. They're all transgressions of human nature and God's truth. And the end result of each of these isms, each of these philosophies is death. Therefore, the title, Dust of Death. Os Guinness said it is only when he returned to the scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus Christ did he find a genuine solution to the problems of the human condition. It is only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said, that there is a a fresh wind blowing through the dust of humanity's hollow dreams. And that's what Jason and Joyce just declared this morning when they were baptized. They're saying, hey, the only way I can be made right is through Jesus, and he's adopted me as sons and daughters. That's what they're declaring, because there is this dust of death over all of human nature, and there's no other thing we can turn to that's going to make it okay. And that is, of course, what Paul is saying here, that there is this tendency in all of humanity for trespasses, and it marks our death. These trespasses, they reveal our powerlessness, that humanity is unresponsive to our deepest needs. We we, we do not react correctly. Our philosophies, our ideals, however well-intentioned they may be, they all carry the dust of death, that same powerlessness to get at the root issues of the human condition. And Paul goes beyond that. He says we're not just dead because of our trespasses, we're also dead because of our sin, Beyond our unintentional missteps, there's also our intentional violation of truth. And that's what sin is. Anytime you know something to be true, something to be right, and you willfully do something else, that is sin. And and, and we've all done it. And, And the reality of this, the end result of this is corruption. And you see it, I mean, I intentionally tell a lie, I become a liar, And truth is corrupted. I intentionally take something that is not mine. I become a thief. And my integrity 
is corrupted. I intentionally share some information that is not mine to share. I become a gossip and trust is corrupted. You go through anything and you look and you can see sin corrupts. It just corrupts. It is a mark of death, an increasing, progressing corruption. And in the process, we gradually just become desensitized to it. It it doesn't always affect us as it should. And so we have some sins. We say, well, these aren't so bad. You know, everybody does these, so they're okay. And then there's axe murderers. And they go straight to hell. They don't pass go. They go straight to hell. They don't collect $200, right? Because we we become desensitized to some things, and we come up with our own standards. I was flying back from Sierra Leone a few years ago. It's been a week and a half over there in Africa, and... I mean, it's just hot, right? I mean, it's, it's 100 plus degrees every day. Humidity is crazy. You're sweating all the time. There's no air conditioning. And when you take showers over there, the shower is just, it's a bucket of water from a shallow well. So the, the, the water's dirty. Like they tell you, hey, close your eyes. Don't open your mouth when you take your shower. I wasn't really sure if I was like cleaner or dirtier after I got out of the shower, you know? And... But that's all you got. And so do the week and a half there, get on the plane to come back. Not the plane from Sierra Leone to Paris, okay? Not that one. But on the, on the flight from Paris back to the States, I'm sitting next to this guy and I'm thinking, man, that guy smells really bad. Like, that guy really could use a shower. And at some point during the flight, I get up to use the restroom. And in the restroom, it dawned on me, I'm the guy. See, for a week and a half, I'd become desensitized to it. Everybody smelled the way I did, right? I get home and stuff's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, we gotta, I just need to spray you down outside before you come in the house. That's what sin does. It, it corrupts, and it's corrupted all of us, and so we become desensitized to it, and we carry this stench of death, but we don't even notice. We don't even notice. And that's Paul's analysis. Trespasses are the result of human powerlessness, a sign of death. Sin is the result of human corruption. And that corruption just increases and increases. And it's another sign of death. See, all, all all, all the evidence is there. All the characteristics of death can be observed. We are spiritually dead. It is a dead on diagnosis that Paul gives. And then he shows you, he's like, and if you want some more evidence, let me, let me give you three more things that just reveal our death. So we followed the course of this world. That's what he says there. We followed the course of this world. Literally, it is the age of this world. The age in which we live, it has certain characteristics, and we're pressured by the age, the culture in which we live to adopt those characteristics ourselves. We are pressured into conformity. And I know some of us will say, well, hey, I don't conform. I'm a non-conformist. I'm a a revolutionary. I reject conforming to the establishment. But we have to admit that even if we don't conform to the major group, the dominant culture, we conform to a subculture. There is some type of culture that we conform to, that our peers influence us to live like they do. See, we're all pressured. 
We're, we're all governed by the attitudes of the world, and it impacts how we live, even if we claim to be nonconformist. You know, the only true nonconformist there ever was was Jesus. I mean, you think about it. He was pressured to conform by the religious leaders. He was pressured to conform by the, by the Jews, by the Roman government, by his family, even by his disciples, and he never did. He always answered every single time, I must be about the will of my father. I'm not about the will of the church. I'm not about the will of my family. I'm not about the will of the society, the government. I am about the will of my father. So he continually went against the grain of his family, of his friends, of society, of tradition, you name it. And the result was he was criticized, he was misunderstood, he was hated, he was persecuted, he was opposed, and ultimately he was executed because he would not conform to the spiritually dead world around him. And even today, the world hates genuine Christianity whenever and wherever it is practiced because genuine Christianity does not conform to society. It does not conform. It is always a contrast. And so it is attacked on all sides. It is attacked by tradition and it is attacked by culture because it fails to conform to the corrupt norms of any dominant culture or any subculture. Paul says that it's more than just not conforming, though, or that it's more than just conforming to our culture. We reveal our spiritual death and that we follow the prince of the power of the air. See, beyond the visible walls of this world, there's this invisible reality. Something lying there, this dark and evil, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is at work. And we followed that. In our disobedience, we've all followed him. We've accepted his rule, and he, he, he rips away the veil. Paul's just ripping away the veil and unmasking the evil behind humanity's tragic and shameful condition. Paul says that there is this organized realm that is run and headed by a cruel ruler whose goal is to generate and multiply disobedience against God, and that we're all willing participants that we've all followed, that we've all gone in step there. Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. He's not, he's not really talking about the oxygen-nitrogen mix that we all breathe, although an argument can be made that Satan has corrupted even our uh, physical planet and atmosphere. But the reference here is more to the fact that even though the air is invisible to us, it pervades all around us. It, it, it is always present, even though we can't see it. In the same way, Satan and his angels, they invisibly surround us. They, they are present, manipulating the actions of humanity into disunity, into chaos, leading us further and further toward greater and greater disobedience. There is an evil at work constantly in society whispering that truth is a lie and that the lie is the truth. And before Christ, we all accepted the lie that we can be the masters of our own destiny, that it's really up to us to look out for number one, and this is a condition of being spiritually dead. Paul says it's clear that we followed Satan because we lived in the passions of our flesh, 
following the desires of our body and our mind. Paul says that we all did that, that we were all born into this state of spiritual death. God created us flesh and blood. You know, back in the beginning, he created us flesh and blood, and it was good. And these desires of the flesh, they start off as good. You know, desires uh, that God meant, these passions that God meant for our good, for his glory, for enjoyment, for life, they all started off as good. The desire for food, the desire for drink, the, the desire for friendship, for achievement, the desire for pleasure, the desire for sexual intimacy, these are all good desires. The problem is our nature has been corrupted And that we seek to gratify these desires in the wrong place, in the wrong way, with the wrong people. And we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And so we've taken what is good, and we've taken it out of place and out of proportion. And instead of it being good, it becomes gluttony. It becomes alcoholism. It becomes laziness. It becomes greed. It becomes envy. It becomes selfish obsession with status. It becomes gossip. It becomes fornication. It becomes adultery. The list goes on and on, and it reveals our spiritual death, that we take good desires and we twist them to fulfill them in sinful ways. And when Paul talks about this, he makes a distinction between the cravings of the body and the cravings of the mind. The, 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 the actions and the thoughts. We just talked about the cravings of the body, but the mind starts with good desires too, you know. There's this desire for justice, and then we distort it, and it becomes a desire for revenge. You know, there, there, there's a desire to, to grow in learning, and, and we distort it, and it becomes pride that we somehow better than people. Paul says this condition is universal and it is inescapable. That, that we've, all, we've all got it. We all carry the marks of death before Christ. That, that you look at any life, you look at my life, you look at your life, you look at any life, you look at Jason's life, you look at Joyce's life, any life, and before Christ we all carry the mark of sin. And the spiritual death is the result. No one can avoid the human condition. We like to think that we can avoid it. We like to think that we're not really that bad off. We like to think that there's a category for axe murderers and there's a category for other people. But it goes like this, right? Let's say that you can get all of humanity to Virginia Beach. Okay, we all go to Virginia Beach and we're all going to swim across to England. Okay, we're just going across. No one's going to make it, right? We're all drowning in that ocean. I mean, there may be like Michael Phelps who makes it a little farther than the rest of us, you know, because he's a little better swimmer than we are but we're all drowning in the ocean, right? It's like being on the Titanic. It doesn't matter what deck you're on. It doesn't matter what chair you're sitting in. The whole thing's going down. And that's the human condition, is that we all bring sin to the table. The gross reality is that apart from Christ, what we have to offer, what we have to bring into the kingdom is sin. And sin carries the stench of death even when we're desensitized and we don't even realize it. And if God were were to allow sin to enter his kingdom, his perfect kingdom, it would no longer be perfect, right? And so justice, in order to maintain this perfect kingdom, justice must be maintained. And we can't get in and of ourselves. We're dead. 
We do not carry the proper characteristics. And sometimes we have a problem with that. And we hear this. We are children of wrath, designed for God's wrath, Paul says. And we look at that and we have a hard time. We, sometimes we picture this judgmental God who is up in heaven just waiting for us to mess up so we can hurl down lightning bolts at us. But that, that's not the picture that Paul is painting. Well, what he wants us to understand is there's this law of consequences that for every action there is a just reaction. For every cause there is an effect. And we accept this in nature, you know. If we jump off a building and we land on the pavement, we accept God's wrath when our face hits the pavement, right? We expect the laws of gravity to remain true when we jump off of tall buildings. It works the same way with the moral sphere of life as well. That we've all taken that plunge into sin and the natural consequence of sin is death. Separation from God and his perfect kingdom because we are not fit to enter. And without Christ, all we bring to the kingdom is sin. We bring that imperfection. We'd pollute it. We'd corrupt it. See, this, this condition is severe. It's universal. No one escapes it. We all carry the dust of death. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your gender, your Whatever you want to put, your IQ, it doesn't matter. We're all born into a condition of spiritual death. Then there's the first two words of verse 4. And they provide this sudden glimmer of hope. But God. you got to come back next week for that message, though, okay? But, but God. And we wonder, could it be... That hopeless humanity could find a hope in her creator? Could, could it be that, that us who carry the stench of death, who have nothing but powerlessness and corruption, have filled our lives, could it be that he would rescue and redeem us? And then if he would, would he simply rescue and redeem us merely to be a volunteer as if he needed us? No, it's much more than that. He rescues and redeems us so that we can be his masterpiece, a display of his glory as we join the work of God that he's doing right now on earth for heaven's sake anyway. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. May your bigness, your, your majesty, your, your sovereignty, may it never escape us. Because, God, when we take a right view of who we were before Christ, we see that stench of death. We see the marks, the characteristics of powerlessness and corruption. And, God, our, our faith is magnified in you once again. Because we realize without you, we know what we deserve. But, God, thank you that you didn't leave us there, that there are those two words, but God, and that through Jesus Christ, you did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So God, we thank you for that. So God, this week, may we be your missionaries who you commission off to share Jesus and impact people. We realize we need your help to do it. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.